COVID wiped through our family, and so, uh, you know, my, my first day on the job as senior pastor, I was not in the office, and, uh, and so what I've heard is uh, Mr. George is calling for a vote of no confidence. It'll be the shortest pastor it ever experienced, so, uh, so, but thank you all for your kind texts and calls and checking in and the, the food that you have brought. Uh, it's, it has been a huge help and support for our family, so thank you for that. I really appreciate that. So, we'll we'll be in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. I know most of you probably thought we would never get back to this book, but we are now back to 1 Corinthians 10, and we will be in this uh, till after Easter. So, uh, we'll be in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, and uh, looking at verses 1 through 22, and once you arrive at chapter 10, if you would, just please stand for the reading of John's Word. Is this. For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea and all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them and the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Now these things took place as examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did. Do not be idolaters as some of, the, as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. We must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did and 23,000 fell in a single day. We must not put Christ to the test as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents. Nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction, on whom the end of the ages has come. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape, that you may be able to endure it. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. I speak as to sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I say. The cup of blessing that we bless is not a participation. Is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body. For we all partake of the one bread. Consider the people of Israel. Are not those who eat the sacrifices participants in the altar? What do I imply then? That food offered to idols is anything? Or that an idol is anything? No, I imply that what pagans sacrifice, they offer to demons and not to God. I do not want you to be participants with the demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Shall we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than he? Let's pray. God, by your spirit at work in your people, God, open up our eyes to see what you have for us from these scriptures, God, that we would take a warning from your word not to continue in sin and rebellion, but we would repent and trust in Christ, God. Lord, I thank you for your word. We need instruction. We need wisdom in this life. And so, Father, I also do want to pray this morning just for those in our congregation who are mourning even the loss of Miss Dot Olivier. 
the sweet woman who was a member here for many, many, many years and that we will all miss. God, we pray for her family right now as they grieve. God, Lord, again, I do pray. Lord, give us wisdom from your word. I pray by your spirit working in us, sanctify us in your truth. It's in your name that we pray. Amen. You may be seated. One of my favorite quotes that has I've recently uh, come on to um, is, is a quote that I've liked because of this reason. It makes sense of a lot of how the Bible, um, how the biblical story kind of works itself out. So here's the quote, and you can write it down or it might be on your papers, but history may not repeat itself, but it often rhymes. History may not repeat itself, but it often rhymes. The quote is by Samuel Clemens. Anybody know who Samuel Clemens is? Mark Twain. Mark Twain's, uh, Mark Twain's name. And so what Mark Twain meant by that line is that history doesn't repeat itself, but it often rhymes, meaning that events that occur, they might not look point for point or exactly like or line for line of what its predecessor looked like, but it often has similarities to the event that occurred beforehand. I think we could all probably attest to something like that. Man, that looks really similar. That, that sounds like something I've heard before. It may not be line for line. It might not be point for point or exact data for data, but it often has a lot of similarities to it. And so now we have the Corinthian Christians entering on the scene and Look, they may be in a different context, in a different time, in a different environment, in a different situation. But what they're dealing with, their sins particularly, sounds strikingly familiar to the ones that their forefathers dealt with, Israel. Is that, is, is that the Corinthians, they too struggle with idolatry and giving themselves over to idols. They struggle with that just as Israel did. And that if they too, if they don't change their way of life, if the Corinthians don't change their way of life, they will also experience a similar result, meaning God's justice. And so this is, the Paul, this is what Paul is trying to make an argument here in 1 Corinthians 10. Is that he will spend a couple verses in 10, 1 through 5, recalling God's provisions to Israel. Remember what God did for Israel in delivering them, and then in the wilderness wanderings. Remember that, okay? And then he's going to highlight the patterns of Israel's sins and the consequences that came with them. And then lastly, he's going to tell the Corinthians is that participating with idols and with Jesus is incompatible and impossible. So we're going to look at three P words, provisions, patterns, and participation. Can you three, say those three with me? Good. Let's look at number one, provisions. In verses 10, 1 through 5, is that Paul is going to recall how God cared and was concerned about Israel so much so that he provided for them in their darkest of moments. Uh, let me ask you a question. Can you recall your best birthday? Can you recall your best birthday? It's like, I, I'm, I'm thinking about this right now because today is Jude's birthday. And uh, he's seven. And so uh, it made me start thinking, what was my best birthday? 
well, it's probably the birthday where like, oh, I got this gift, and I got this gift, and I got this gift, and I went to Skateville. Skateville was the big place and, you know, that you went to uh, in Dry Prong. It wasn't in Dry Prong, but um, just when you went to big, big city Pineville. Um, but we did this. We had cake, and my friends came. We went to Skateville, and I got this gift, and this gift, and this gift, and this gift. Is that, that's usually how, how we kind of think about things when we think about our best birthday. It's just all the gifts that we had and all the, all the, all the uh, fun that we had and all the things that we did together. And this is what Paul is doing here in reminiscing on Israel's story. Look, look at your, your best days, in a sense, of what God did for you. Reminisce and recall those things of what God did for your fathers way back when and how he constantly provided for them. That he continually showed them provision after provision after provision. And this is how he begins in verse 1. I don't want you to be unaware of these things, brothers. That's what he's telling the Corinthians. I don't want you to forget what God has done in the past for Israel. Because it matters. Because that's how God constantly is for his people. So I don't want you to be unaware, brothers. I don't want you to forget these things. And that he's going to show the correspondence of God provided for Israel and he's also provided for you. Showing the correspondence between the two, Israel and the Corinthians. And so look how God continually provided for Israel over and over again here in verses 1 through 5. Is that he says, look, all your fathers were under the cloud. If you remember the cloud from Exodus, is that this is the way in which God guided his people was by the cloud, right? By the pillar of fire at night. That's the way. So the cloud is meant to say, look, God guided Israel. He was with them. He was with them. He guided them all the way through their wilderness wanderings. And look at this. So they were under the cloud, and then they all passed through the sea. That's Paul's way of saying, you remember the Exodus? You remember what he did when he parted the waters and they all went through and then the waters came down on the Egyptians? That's not, God didn't just guide you, but he also delivered you from your enemies and from your oppressors. Remember that. Is that you were all under the cloud and you all passed through the sea. You all, your fathers, they all experienced God's guidance and all experienced God's deliverance. Remember that. And then he goes in and he says something really interesting. And all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and the sea. And they all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink. It's like they had their own, uh, had their own ordinances, right? We, we here participate in baptism in the Lord's Supper. So they're, they're being baptized into Moses in a sense. They're, they're eating spiritual food and drink. Now, it's not saying that they had the Lord's Supper and baptism like, like we have today. But it's showing that, look, they... They have fellowship with God. That they were, they were uh, brought in to his people. They were baptized into Moses, their leader. And so we can see some of the correspondence. And just to make this real clear, is that Moses foreshadowed Jesus, right? Both deliverers, Jesus being the ultimate deliverer. The exodus out of Egypt, it foreshadowed when God through his son, Jesus Christ, would bring his people out of slavery to sin. The exodus foreshadowed God's ultimate deliverance through his son, Christ. And Israel, God's people in the Old Testament, foreshadowed the church. Those who would experience the benefits of deliverance. And so this is 
This is what Paul is trying to get them to recall. Remember all that God did. And then I would be, uh, you know, I would insult you if I didn't talk about verse 4 real quick. Because if you didn't notice this in the reading, Paul is doing something really interesting in verse 4. That he says, for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them. And the rock was Christ. I mean, that should be making your head spin for a second. The rock was Christ? What? So he's saying, look, I didn't just guide Israel. I didn't just deliver them. But I sustained them in the wilderness with this rock that gave them water. And this rock was Christ. And I don't think this is such a far-fetched idea for Paul to say this. Because... We remember in the Old Testament, many times, uh, either in the Psalms or, you know, even in Isaiah, the rock metaphor is associated with God. God is our rock, right? It's not only associated with God, but the rock metaphor is also associated with the Messiah, Jesus Christ. If you remember, even the the apostles, they quote Isaiah 28, 16 to say, he will be a, a rock of stumbling stumbling block and so the rock metaphor is one that is used for God and used for Jesus the Messiah and so it's not so crazy for Paul to say the rock was Christ right it isn't far-fetched for them and it it's not so far-fetched for them to think that even Jesus was somehow present with Israel in their deliverance in their wilderness wanderings I'm just going to give you a verse to chew on Take this home, chew on it, come back, spit it out what you think about it to me. But in Jude, verse 5, it says this. Now I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus, who saved a people out of the land of Egypt, Jesus saved a people out of the land of Egypt. So somehow Paul is seeing that even in their deliverance and in their wilderness wanderings, Jesus was present with his people. And so, this is what Paul is recalling for the Corinthians. Remember how in your forefathers, that God guided them with the cloud. That God brought them through the sea and destroyed their enemies before them. And that God not only saved them and guided them, but He also sustained them with water and with food. This is all that God did for them. Look at all the provisions that God showed to Israel. But guess what happened? Look at verse 5. Nevertheless. Nevertheless. That's never a good way to start. After you've, after you've gone all, over all these provisions, like look at all the awesome things God did. Nevertheless. You never say it in a positive tone. Look what Israel did. Despite having all those provisions, God was not pleased with them. For they were overthrown in the wilderness. Meaning, despite all that God did for them, despite all the provision that He gave them, despite His guidance, His deliverance, and His sustaining them in the wilderness, they still continue to rebel and sin and go after idols and were overthrown in the wilderness. And so this is what Paul, just... Let me give you a couple points of application of this. Is that this is what Paul is trying to get at here. Is that Corinthians and even for us, Crosspoint, 
is that God's goodness to us doesn't exempt us from fighting sin and from fleeing from idolatry. So God constantly being good to us, constantly being good to us over and over again, constantly providing for us, doesn't, doesn't give us the, the um, it, it doesn't give us the right to kind of slap our hands away and say, well, I don't, I don't really care about sin. God's been so good to me, He's going to continue to be good to me regardless of what happens. Regardless of how I respond to Him. And here we're finding out, do not let God's goodness send you into passivity. To send you into thinking that God still doesn't care about sin because He's overly good to me. God's goodness doesn't exempt you from fleeing idolatry and fleeing sin. But rather, God's goodness should stimulate you to fight against sin and fight against idolatry. It should stimulate you. Is that Paul's saying, look, Christians, look at what God has done in Christ Jesus for you. Look at what God has done in Christ Jesus for you. Cross point, look at what God has done in Christ Jesus for you. Why would you go to idols? Look how God has cared for you and provided for you so far. Why would you think that an idol could do any better? Why? God's goodness should stimulate you to fight against sin. And God's goodness does not contradict His righteousness. He is good and He is just. Look, in verses 1-5, through we see this. God is overly good to Israel. But that doesn't mean He's a pushover. That doesn't mean He will tolerate sin. That doesn't mean He will tolerate rebellion and evil. They were overthrown in the wilderness. And so Paul is calling on us on all Christians, consider God's goodness to Israel and that He is still constantly good to Israel. And so that they would be and we would be stimulated to fight against idolatry, to fight against the sins that lure us into them. But next, here's what Paul's going to do to continue making this armor. He's going to call the Corinthians and even us to look on Israel's example as a way of warning us of how not to respond to God and how to flee from idolatry. So look at number two. So we looked at God's provision. Now we're looking at patterns, Israel's patterns in verses 6 through 13. Tell me if you heard this growing up. I'm going to make an example out of you. Anybody that kid in their household that was made an example out of for the other kids? It's like, I mean, you can raise your hands. Like, man, I, I was the example kid. My mom spanked me to warn my sister, you know? I'll make an example out of you. Or maybe you were that kid in the class, right? I'm, I'm just going to punish this kid just to make an example out of him, to scare everybody else. So everybody knows this is serious. Well, people do that. Parents do that. Teachers do that too. Because examples help people learn lessons, right? You see something happen to somebody. You see them get spanked in front of you because of what they did. It kind of sends a shock wave throughout the whole class or throughout the other uh, siblings, right? They've been made an example of. And this seems to be kind of one of the reasons why Paul is, um, is bringing up Israel's kind of, we're going to call this Israel's rap sheet. Uh, all their darkest moments. And so that it would be a warning for us who read them and hear them that we would not repeat their same failures. So look at this. Look at verse 6. 
He says, now these things took place as examples for us. They took place as examples. This word example uh, here used uh, is the same word uh, for type that we hear of other places. So um, one author says it means a pattern or a mold that has been set. If you remember in Romans chapter 5, it says, Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even to those who were sinning, was not like the transgression of Adam, who was, that being Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. So a foreshadowing of some sense. That this person is a foreshadowing of the Messiah. That being Adam was a foreshadowing. He was a type. Right? And so these are types. These are examples. Well, why do the Corinthians need examples? Well, to teach them not to repeat Israel's mistakes and suffer the same consequences, right? And so what Paul's going to do in verses 6 through 13, he's just going to give us an itemization, in a sense, of all Israel's failures and wrongdoings. Bang, 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 right here. And the pattern goes like this, is that we're going to get a sin, particular sin that Israel was a part of, and then we're going to get uh, their willing involvement. He wants to be very clear that this was kind of a solidarity kind of thing for all of Israel, that they willingly gave themselves over to the sin. And then we're going to see the consequence, consequence of what they did. So look at, look at this. Let's just, let's just run down these things in verse 6 through 13. He said, the reason that we're giving these examples is so that we would not desire evil as they did. And so he says, verse 7, do not be idolaters. So there's the sin, idolatry. And then he says, as some of them were. Okay, look, that, that, look, there's some solidarity there. Some people in Israel gave themselves over into idolatry. They did this. This was their sin. And here was the consequence. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. Now you might be like, that, what, how is that a consequence? Well, here's what Paul's doing. He's quoting from Exodus 32, verse 6. And Exodus 32 should be like a really highlighted and prominent chapter in your mind. Because does anybody remember what happened in Exodus 32? The golden calf. You remember the odd story where they take all, you know, Moses has gone up the mountain. And so Aaron's like, Aaron down there is like, uh, we don't know where Moses went. Give me all your jewelry. I'm going to throw this in the fire. And out pops a calf. I don't know how that works. But. A calf came out, a golden calf. So they started worshiping it. And, and Moses came down, and when he came down, he broke the, the, ten, the two tablets, the commandments, and, uh, and, then, and God was not happy. God was not happy. And so Paul is quoting this verse so that you would not just go back to this verse, Exodus 32, verse 6, but that you would go back to the whole chapter and see there's a serious thing that happened in Israel, and there was consequences. People were slaughtered that day. People were slaughtered that day because of their sin and their evil. He goes on and says this. We must not indulge in sexual immorality. Of some of them did. And 23,000 fell in a single day. This is from Numbers 25. He goes on. Not to put Christ to the test as some of them did. And they were destroyed by serpents. Numbers 21, if you remember that one. And then... We are not to grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. That's Numbers 14. You remember the people were constantly grumbling, not feeling like they had enough. You know, they, they, one of my not favorite stories, but right after they get saved out of Egypt, 
they're grumbling in the wilderness and they're, they're considering going back to Egypt because they said, man, we don't have any food out here and we had fish and cucumbers back in Egypt. I don't know why that was so pleasurable a thing to eat, you know, fish and cucumbers. But they're like, we had, man, we, you know, yeah, we were in slavery. Yeah, sure, it was hard work, but we had fish and cucumbers back there. How heinous of a thought that God has miraculously delivered Israel, and yet they're thinking about going back into slavery, right? They grumble. They were grumbling. So this is, this is Israel's rap sheet here. Idolatry, sexual immorality, grumbling, testing God. And so these things happened as examples for us. But they weren't only, they didn't just happen as examples. They also were written down for instruction. Verse 11. Now these things happened to them as examples. But they were written down for our what? Instruction. Instruction. They happened for a reason. But what happened to them was written down for a reason. So that we may take up this thing and read it and be warned by how they live. By seeing their consequences. By seeing their failures. Is that we are now implored to read these things so that we may not fall into the same traps. Into the same temptations and sins of those who have gone before us. That, that we would learn from former errors by seeing their consequences. Because, you know, as many of you have probably heard this quote, but the definition of insanity, does anybody know? is doing the same thing over and over again and expecting what? Different results. This is why we have the warning of Scripture. Is that we would not get into this path of thinking, I can do like people who have done before me and have different results. I can continue in sin and idolatry and rebellion and guess what? God won't do anything about it. That is not what history says. That is not what the Word says. If we continue in sin and idolatry, God will continue to be just and righteous as He was in the past and will be today. And so, He says this. is that by recalling all these things, hearing about everything that happened to Israel, He says in verse 12, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. Paul's not calling into question people's salvation or people's faith. That's, that's not what he's doing here. Is that he's calling into question someone's self-assurance. Someone's self-assurance. Is that lest one of us be presumptuous or unabashed that our spiritual level is just such on a on another degree, it's so much higher than Israel, it's so much higher than anybody else, that there is no sin that could penetrate my spiritual bubble. There's, I'm, no, no, no. I know, I know Israel struggled with that. I know Israel got you know, you know, infatuated with idols and idolatry. But that, that's not me. I'm on a different level. I can handle this. Paul says, beware. As we know, pride comes before the what? The fall. One author says it like this. He says, 
the assurance that Paul attacks is not the assurance of faith that rests on the promises of God, but the assurance that has its roots in nonchalance, meaning, yeah, look, it's sin, it's not going to affect me, I'm okay, I can do these things over here, I can act this way, I can go to these things, I can participate in these things, it's not going to affect me, I'm not going to fall into that like Israel. Says that is such a dangerous way to be. This is not assurance in God to fight sin, but what Paul is warning is that there's a self assurance that one believes they could never give in to sin in the first place. How dangerous a place that is for us that we can get that we can get into that we're in a place that says I, I'll never fall into that. That's not me. Take heed lest you fall. And so God says, but look, for those who are in Christ Jesus, those who want to fight against sin, there is hope in temptation. There is hope in temptation. Is that we, we must remember this. God does not tempt, James 1.13. He does not tempt. And second, he says that temptation is not unique to you. You can't make this argument and say, no one's ever gone through what I've gone through. No one has ever been tempted the way that I've been tempted. I'm unlike any other person. I'm experiencing temptation unlike any other person who has gone before me. He says this, no temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. You you can't make that argument that I'm the one in six billion that has ever experienced this No one can say that. No one can make that argument because even our Savior was tempted. Remember Matthew chapter 4 when Satan tempts Jesus? Remember Hebrews chapter 4 verse 15 is that he's able to sympathize with our weaknesses because in every respect he has been tempted as we are yet without sin. But when we are tempted, God is faithful in our temptation. This is is the truth. God is faithful. God will not forsake his people in temptation. So when you're struggling with temptation, when it is bearing heavy down on you, remember, God is faithful. He will not forsake you in your temptation and in your struggle. Even when we are unfaithful, God remains faithful. And that God will even preserve you in your fight against temptation. He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation, he will also provide a way Escape that you may be able to endure. No one can make the excuse or excuse him by saying, I had no choice. I had to give in to my temptation. I just had to give in to my temptation. You do not. You do not have to give in to your temptation. God is faithful and he will persevere you in temptation and give you a way out. But he also calls us not to be arrogant towards temptation and sin, but to be vigilant towards temptation and sin. Our, our, our first initial response towards temptation when we feel it is not to say, I can deal with this. No big deal. I, I, I can play around with the sin. It's not, it's not going to overtake me. No. Paul is here saying, be vigilant against sin. Kill it. Because it will overtake you if you are not vigilant. And remember that sin has consequences with it. 
it done. It's not a neutral event. It's not a neutral act. And that the Bible is actually a means of grace for us, an instrument that God has given us to help us fight sin. Is that if you're thinking that in your own strength and ability that you can fight against sin, let me just say this, you have no strength and ability apart from God to fight your sin. But He has given us His Word and His Spirit to warn us of the errors that those people have made before us. That He's, he's given us warnings and instructions. So if you are disregarding, if right now you are giving in to temptation, you are giving in to sin, you're letting it overwhelm you right now, let's, let's ask the question, how much are you in God's Word? Because He has given us warnings and instructions. But be assured, Christian, be assured that temptation is heavy. It is overbearing at times. You feel like you cannot run away. As fast as you run, it feels like it constantly creeps upon you and is constantly chasing you. Remember this, that God is, God is faithful to you in your fight against temptation and will, will persevere you to the end. God is faithful in temptation. And we are faithless. He remains faithful. And so remember, God is faithful in your temptation. And so Israel's story, it should be a warning for us. It should be a warning for us to not repeat their errors. And so what Paul is going to do next is that he's going to go even further with his argument here, saying that God has made great provision for you. God has given you warnings and shown you the patterns of what sin ultimately is the result of sin. And now he's going to say, where does your participation lie? Where is your allegiance lie? What are you going to participate with? Who are you going to participate with? Because you cannot be a participant in idolatry and also call yourself a participant in Christ Jesus. This is point number three. Participation. Verses 14 through 22. Um, I, I'm assuming that people have been on family vacations that have traveled across states. Um, let me ask you this. Have, have any of you uh, going across, let's, I'm just going to assume most of us have been out of Louisiana for a trip at some point, uh, have driven out of Louisiana. Has anybody ever stopped at the state line and, and straddled it and say, I'm in two places at once, <laughs> Yes, one person in here is, is cool enough to admit that all you other people have done it. You're just not going to admit. But everybody's like, oh, two places at once. It's, a, it's a, you know, scientifically impossible, but I'm doing it, you know. Yeah, I know it's kind of lame. Um, but the kids think it's funny. So uh, we, all, we all do that. You know, you're standing in Arkansas at one point and it is impossible. It is incompatible. You cannot continue to give in to idolatry and be an idolater as well as follow Christ. You can't participate with Christ and idols. It's impossible. And to do so, to do so is actually damaging and damning. It's dangerous. And so one cannot submit to Christ and to idols. And so 
Paul says, therefore, in verse 14, recall everything that we've just said, God's provision for his people, the patterns of sin that we've seen in Israel and what it's brought about upon them. And now, look at what he says. Flee from idolatry. Flee from idolatry. He's already warned us so far in chapter 8 to flee from sexual immorality. And now he's telling the Corinthians and us to flee from idolatry. And here's how he says it. He makes an interesting argument through the use of, of a word over and over again. And it's the word participation. Just look at that, how many times it occurs here. Participation, our participants, happens in verse 16 twice. It happens in verse uh, 18. It happens again in verse 20. Is that over and over again, four times here in these verses, is that he brings up participation and that their participation reveals where their true allegiance lies. What they participate in, it reveals where their true allegiance lies. And that he's going to show that it's, it's impossible to have dual allegiance. And he shows this by describing two meals. He's going to do this by describing meals. Not like lunch and dinner, not that. But two different meals. And, and look at the first meal. Is that he says, the cup of blessing or the bread is that he's talking about the Lord's Supper. He's talking about the Supper. The cup of blessing and the bread. And he's going to talk more about the Lord's Supper in chapter 11. And so he says, this is what we do as God's people who have been brought into, into the faith through Christ Jesus. Is we now symbolize, we now uh, verbalize or show and demonstrate through partaking of the bread together. Partaking of the cup together. That we are one in Christ. That we are in Christ. That's what. That's what this meal is showing, the Lord's Supper, is that we participate in this meal because it is a symbol of our allegiance to Christ, and it shows that we have fellowship with Christ, and therefore have fellowship with one another. So that's the first meal. He says, this is what we do. This is why we do it. We have the Lord's Supper. We have this meal, and we do it to show our allegiance to Christ and our fellowship with one another when we take this together. But he says there's a second meal that some people participate in, and that's food offered to idols. Look at here, he says, verse 18, what do I imply in that food offered to idols is anything or that an idol is anything? So, and so what the Corinthians are doing is that they're knowingly eating meat or food that is sacrificed to idols. And Paul says that like Israel, by eating the meat sacrificed to idols is that you are participating in the altar. You're participating in the altar, the worship of the idol. It's a symbol of you partaking of this knowingly and willingly. It's a symbol of your partnership and fellowship with idols. This is a really interesting verse to write down. This one came to me late in the week when studying for this. But Exodus 34, 15 is that God is warning Israel, lest you make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land, and when they whore after their gods and sacrifice to their gods, and you are invited you eat of his sacrifice. So the sacrifice that has been made to God, they eat and partake of it, that's what he's warning. And so there's two meals, the Lord's Supper that they're partaking in and the food offered to idols. And that When they eat the food offered to idols, it's showing they have fellowship with and that they are, in a sense, condoning what is being done in the worship of these idols. But what is so wrong with this? What's so wrong with eating meat sacrificed to idols? What's the big deal? 
Well, it's just, it's just me. It's just a steak. I mean, come on. Right? Paul says it's a really big deal. Is that first in verse 20, is that the sacrifices themselves that are being made to idols, this is not a neutral, a spiritually neutral event. Is that there is something very dark and sinister going on behind sacrifices to idols and to gods. Is that we might think, oh, it's, it's not, the, the idol doesn't really exist, it doesn't really mean anything, it's just me being sacrificed. It's not a big deal. But Paul saying, Paul is getting this. In Deuteronomy 32, verse 17, he says this. This is speaking about Israel. They sacrificed to demons that were no gods, to gods they had never known, to new gods that had come recently, whom your fathers had never dreaded. So in their sacrifice to idols, they're not just sacrificing to something that's made into the image of gold, but there is something sinister and evil and dark behind that. Demons. So that's, that's what's wrong with it. David Garland says it like this, however innocent the Christian's intentions might be, the result is that they give their assent to, collaborate with, and swell the ranks of the demonic defiance of the sovereign God when they sacrifice to idols. Again, partaking of the food sacrificed to idols somehow recognizes, condones, and approves of their worship. And let me just, I want to give a piece of application. I'm not going to stand up here and be legalistic and say, you shouldn't, you, you shouldn't, uh, you know, go to movies because there's evil there or anything like that. You shouldn't watch this movie. You shouldn't, you know, you shouldn't drink that. You shouldn't eat that. You know, I, I'm not going to come here and give you a, a list of legalistic forms and norms that you shouldn't do. But I do want you to be wise in what we do. I do want us to be wise because sometimes we can give ourselves over to things, do things, say things, go to things, be in places that somehow show our assent to, collaboration with, um, or, or uh, condoning of a particular thing that is actually not of God at all. And we have to be very careful with these things. We have to be very careful with what we do, what we say, and uh, where we go in places like that. And that's where, that's where wisdom comes in. Is that, does our participation in something send the message of our approval to the unbelieving world? Does our, does our actions somehow send the message to the unbelieving world that we approve of this act, or we condone this act, or we contribute to this act, or collaborate with this act? I'm not going to give you a list of what, what to do and what not to do. But I am going to ask you this. Think very carefully about things. Don't willy-nilly, ah, oh, it doesn't matter. Like, yeah, you know. And it may not be like, hey, uh, I've been invited to, uh, to you know, do some child sacrifice down the road at, you know, a, a local synagogue. And I'm considering going. It's not going to be that overt, probably. But there are places and things that are happening that we might need to think, what message does that send to the world? Does that send the message that we agree, comply, adhere, condone what's going on? Because here's what Paul's going to say. You can't have a foot in both worlds. You 
can't drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You can't partake of the Lord's Supper and also take, partake of idol worship food that's been sacrificed to them. You can't continually pledge your allegiance to Christ and continually condone, live, and serve the idols of this world. It's like trying to fight on both sides of two opposing armies. It's impossible, right? You can't fight for both armies that are at odds with one another. It's impossible. And that's what Paul's saying. It's impossible for you to fight on both sides. Idolatry and Christ. Jesus said himself, no one can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other. Or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. And so, you cannot serve serve both God and idols. So remember, yes, God is faithful. We learn that truth from verse 13. But Paul ends by saying, God is faithful, but yes, he is also jealous. Verse 22, taken straight from Exodus 20, verse 5, what Ben read for us this morning. God is faithful, yet God is jealous for his glory, and he will not give it to another. God will not take idolatry laying down And the last line of verse 22 should really shake us from within. It should really be breathtaking to us in a sense. Is that, shall we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than he? Here's the question for you and for me. In your idolatry, do you really think you can stand against God and not suffer the consequences? And they may not be enshrined in temples and they may not require chants and sacrifices, but they often still lure and entice our hearts to, to be given over to them. To forsake Christ and to follow these idols and let them govern how we live and think and breathe and move in this life. I don't know what your idols are. I know Wes McKay's idol. As one reformer said, is our hearts are idol factories. And I know that with my own idols, they draw me and they call me in. Lord, come on. It's so much better. Give me your time. Give me your love. Give me your energy. Give me your strength. I don't know what your idols are, but maybe it's money. Maybe it's work. Maybe it's drugs. Maybe it's addictions. Maybe it's alcohol. Maybe it's TV. Maybe it's baseball games. Maybe it's nice house and cars. Maybe it's reputation. Maybe it's pornography. Maybe it's fame or laziness or materialism or a big bank account. And here's the test if you have an idol. Here's the test. You'll know what that idol is in your heart when it gets taken away from you. When that idol gets taken away from you, you will do whatever it takes to get it back. That when anybody comes and tries to touch our idol, take it away, remove it, you will scream and cry to get it back. And maybe getting it taken away in the first place is the best thing that God can do for us. Is that we all have idols, and I don't know what yours are, I know what mine are. And when they get touched sometimes, man, it's 
no, no, that's not an idol. I, I just, I just, I, I need that. I, I have to have that. I, I, I want that in order, in order to survive. I, I got to have this in my life. And if it is that, that is an idol. And so, Paul is calling on all of us this morning, Christian, is that we have to forsake and flee idolatry. Recognize the idols that lie deep in your heart that you want to go untouched and flee from it. Because as we've seen here in the warnings from Scripture and the instructions that we've given is that God will not tolerate idolatry in His people. We must flee from it. And so, I'm going to ask the band to come back up and lead us out in a song. But I want to remind you of this. Is that in our idolatry, there is good news. Is that just like God made provisions for Israel, is that God has made provisions for us in our idolatry by giving Christ Jesus His Son. And He has come to save us from all forms of evil, even idolatry. That He's come to make us new and to Give us His Spirit so that we are able to forsake idolatry. And not only that, He's given us provision in Christ Jesus who has come and has died in our place on the cross and has been raised from the dead, defeating all sin, death, and hell, and even idols and gods in this world that we may have. That is how God has provided to us, Christian. And that He has also come to warn us, and that's why we have Scripture to show us the patterns in those who have come before us, and the patterns even in our own lives, is that we have patterns where we fall back into sin over and over again. And if we ever get into a point where we think, you know what, God doesn't really care about sin, or there's not going to be any consequences to this, let Scripture be a warning. There are consequences for sin, and we must kill the patterns. And lastly, is that because of what God has done in Christ Jesus to save us from even our idolatry and to show us our own sin, is that now He's going to call on us. Who are you going to participate with? Who are you going to give your allegiance to? Who are you going to be a participant with? The Lord or with idols? Because you cannot have dual allegiance. You cannot participate in both. This morning, if you are not a follower of Christ Jesus, if you have right now, you would say, I've participated with idols all my life, and I want to give them over now and forsake them and throw them down and cast myself on Christ Jesus and participate with Him. This morning, you can have that. This morning, you can come speak with my